Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Unsafe Space. First off, on behalf of women everywhere with borderline personality disorder, let's take a moment of silence for Amber Heard. So many of us are living vicariously through you, Johnny. All right. By the way, uh, I don't know if you know, but uh, Amber's loss is also the ACLU's loss. They basically ghost writ, ghost writ, ghost wrote her op-ed. That was the subject of the lawsuit. So uh, <clears throat> two birds, one stone. All right. Um, you're watching Dangerous Thoughts. I'm Carter Laren, the host. This is a series we do every almost every Wednesday evening. Um, and, you know, in the past I've said, it's mostly for thinkers, you know, be careful if you have ADHD, but someone with ADHD who, uh, emailed me and said, I love the show. Um, <laughs> thinking and ADHD are not opposites and she's correct. They are not opposites. Focus and ADHD are though. And for some reason she's able to focus or at least enjoy the show even though she's not focused so this is a show for focusing and going deep on things and if you have adhd welcome uh but try and pay attention uh okay today's show is going to be a little bit short i think although i say that sometimes and then it turns out to be two hours so who knows but i think it's going to be short i wanted to focus on basically one topic uh which is uh the uvalde shooting um specifically the aftermath, less about the shooting itself. It's something I wanted to talk about last week. Uh, that's I find it quite disturbing. I, I know I'm not alone in that. I didn't talk about it last week because we had a really cool show last week, which was a call-in show. We had people come on from the community, just come on camera. We'll probably do something like that again. Um, and it was a great show. I loved it, but it meant we didn't talk about <clears throat> uh, Uvalde. So I'm going to do that tonight a little bit. Uh, and then I'll let you go you know, depress you and then let you go. That's that's what you get out of this show. First, if you're new to Unsafe Space, welcome. All the shows aren't depressing, just my show, just this show. Uh, so in addition to this show, which is Dangerous Thoughts, we've got other stuff. Earlier today, um, we had Rebel Civics, which airs, again, not every Wednesday, but on Wednesdays. Um, and that's hosted by Keith Bissett. And uh, he talked today, I think he, he spoke about the... Um, Quite exciting Mises Caucus takeover of the Libertarian Party. Oh, you know, I should show you guys something. Check this out. Um, here, how can I do this? So there's a website. I'm, you know, I'm, this is totally off script. I'm supposed to be telling you about other shows, but I just thought of this. Um, there's a website that is associated with the, um, the Libertarian uh, Mises Caucus stuff. And I reached out because I always promised that I would become involved in the Libertarian Party if and only if the Mises Caucus took over. I didn't expect them to, but they did. They took over last weekend, um, which was a big deal. And so I reached out to the Libertarian Party or, or the Mises Caucus of California. And I got this weird email back and it told me, hey, you know, thanks, whatever. Go to takehumanaction.org. So I did. I'm going to go there now. I'll take you there. Action. I should probably show you my screen since I'm doing that. 
Um, they said, hey, go, you know, thanks for being interested in the Mises Caucus. Go to takehumanaction.org. So I figured, all right, that must be some kind of Mises Caucus thing. Well, uh, here it is. It redirects to savethelp.org um, automatically. It automatically redirects this. And this website has got this letter from Nick Sarwark, Sarwark who is like totally anti-Mises Caucus. This, is, this website's all about how the Mises Caucus is uh, basically racist and sexist. Let's see, hold on, where's the, why it matters. Bigotry and far right pandering. <laughs> like this is all about how the Mises Caucus is taking over the Libertarian Party and we should stop them. Uh, so I don't know what the hell's going on over there on the Liber in the Libertarian Party. I don't know what Mises Caucus, like, seems to not even have control over their own website because it's redirecting to this crap. I don't know. I have no idea. Apparently, there's a Cathedral Caucus, which I thought was just in, like, a sarcastically named thing to mock the Cathedral. But I think the Cathedral Caucus is, like, a real thing. They're, like, real people call themselves, unironically, the Cathedral Caucus. Like they're in, they're the cathedral and they want to stay as the cathedral. I, it's the whole thing's a mess. So I think I'm just going to stay out of libertarian. Like, look, I was right for the last 20 years, staying out of libertarian politics has been a good idea. Um, maybe I should just, you know, go back to that. Anyway, that's not what the show's about. I was supposed to be teaching about talking about our other shows. Uh, earlier today, anyway, Keith Bissett on Rebel Civics talked about the Mises takeover. He had uh, Dennis Pratt on, so go check that out if you want. Um, we also, on Tuesdays, not every Tuesday, but uh, many Tuesdays, 451 Degrees with Alex Maselli, roughly every other Tuesday. That's about censorship. We have a show on Mondays, which is every Monday, called Narrative Dissonance. That's, uh, again, hosted by me, and that's where I bring in panelists from non-mainstream media sources, and we talk about, hey, what are we getting lied to uh, with respect to the mainstream media, you know, where are they misleading us? What should we be paying attention to? And then the actual fun show, or so I'm told, is uh, <laughs> is hosted by Beverly, and I think I think Alex is now hosting it with her. Although they don't really tell me what they're up to, but it seems like they're both hosting it together now. Uh, and that's on Thursday uh, evenings, and that is basically pop culture, like nerdy D and D stuff. And if you like. I don't know if you like comic books and D and D and sci-fi and stuff like that, you'll probably like that show. Um, and then sometimes on Fridays we have uh, another show called free association. That's where people just, we just interview interesting people. This Friday we have Axel Kaiser who you may not know, but he's one of the most prominent and admired public intellectuals in Chile. Um, and he's, he talked to me about the, impending adoption of a basically a Marxist Chilean constitution, which is happening. It's kind of a mess in Chile right now. And uh, of course, Chile is the place that you see referred to if people say, if you see memes from the kind of alt-right and or anarchist or ANCAP memes, you'll see jokes about throwing people out of helicopters and jokes about Pinochet. That's all reference to Chile. Pinochet was a, a dictator in Chile for, for years. Um, so Chile's kind of going under un, under uh, a pretty severe left-hand turn going towards some Marxism. So I talked to him about that on this Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific. All right. Oh, also, the next book club is also hosted by Alex Maselli. That will be on June 12th. It's House of Leaves by Mark Danielowski. It is a slog, so go do it. But good, interesting. But a book you work at. Uh, 
And if you happen to be going to Porkfest, if you're in the libertarian community uh, and you happen to be going to Porkfest, uh, which is this June 20 to 26, I think Keith Bissett, host of Rebel Civics, will be there teaching a uh, class on secession, secession 101, which is part of this controversial series that's happening. So check that out. Um, also, before we start, please go share the, this content or any unsafe space content with someone you know. Make sure you're subscribed. Go to unsafespace.com to support all that stuff. You can throw fiat currency at us, get on our Discord server, get inappropriate mugs mailed to you. Depending on your level of support, you get all that stuff. So shout out to everyone in chat. Thank you guys for uh, putting up with my disorganized intro today. Um, and thanks for participating last week in, in chat uh, and, and the interactive discussion. I did really enjoy the, the interaction last week and being able to, to talk to you guys and not just speak at a camera with no one in front of me but my own stupid face. Okay, so let's get into today's show. Um, someone says, I ordered Chipotle today and they added more letters to the LGBT for the 500th time. I think it's at least LGBTQ2SA plus or something, right? Did they add more? You can let us know. We need to know. All right. Pretty soon all the letters will be there. Let's talk about uh, the Uvalde shooting. As most of you know, I'm a parent, so uh, and I'm a parent of a middle schooler. So um, I don't know the school shooting things. Obviously, they bother. They probably bother everyone. They bother every parent. It's just it's really heartbreaking. Uh, and this one in particular is heartbreaking because of some of the circumstances. Not that they're not all horrible. Um, let's just. I don't, I don't want to go over all the details, but the, some some of the timeline matters for what we're going to talk about. So let's just go over the timeline for a second. The the shooter, he's 18 years old. He purchased uh, firearms like literally like a week after his birthday or right after his birthday or something like that. Um, legally from an FFL licensed dealer. Um, no history of, you know, mental illness or criminal record or anything. Uh, anyway, he messages some girl, I think in Germany, he met online saying he's going to kill his grandma. So he shoots his grandmother in the face. She calls 911. So miraculously lived through that, but I think she died later. I'm not sure, but she lived through, she, she called, lived through the shooting in the face, called 911. He went out and stole her car. He, he tackled this girl, uh, in Germany over messaging that he's going to go shoot up a school. Uh, he drives to, Rob Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. And at 11.28, he crashes the car in a ditch, basically kind of like right by the school. There's a there's a ditch by a funeral home in the school right there. And he, he crashes the car that he stole. And he fires a couple shots at some witnesses. And this is at 11.28 a.m. last week. Uh, I think it was, I don't even remember the day. I think it was Monday. Uh, two minutes later, 11.30. So he's not in the school right now. Right? 11.28, he shoots some, Shoots at some people outside. 11.30, the te a teacher at the school calls 911 to report, hey, there's a car crash. And the teacher noticed there's a kid outside with a gun. Um, he he then walks towards the school. He, uh, he climbs a fence into the parking lot. And he shoots at the school a bunch of times. Um, this is a timeline I'm, you know, we got from the, the Texas, the Uvalde police. Uh, 1131, the next minute, he's just walking around the parking lot shooting the rifle. So this is all, 
you know, he's been shooting for several minutes now outside of the school without going in. Then at 11.33, he enters the school and starts firing. Now, the first reports I heard was that there's 12 minutes of him outside shooting around before going in the school. This timeline looks like there's five minutes. Still five minutes um, shooting outside before entering the school. And I guess no one... I mean, someone called to report it, but no one was like, hey, there's a guy in the parking lot shooting. Maybe we should all leave out the other entrance. I don't know. Nothing like that happened. Uh, So he enters the school and he starts firing at 1133. Two minutes later, the Uvalde police enter the school and they get shot at. And when they get shot at, they retreat. By 1144, I'm skipping over some events here, but by 1144, they're back inside. The police are back inside. Um, So that's nine minutes later. They're back inside. Um, by 1215, the border patrol tactical unit arrives. Border patrol is, is, they have an, an office near Uvalde or near the school. I mean, and by, tw- at 1250, that's 1250, 1250 Bortak, the border patrol tactical unit shoots and kills, uh, the shooter. So just a couple things about this timeline to note, there were several minutes went by while he was shooting outside before he entered the school. Um, I don't know what was going on in the minds of the people in the school, that there was a man in the parking lot firing a gun and there wasn't, I don't know. I mean, I guess there's a couple different actions you could take. Maybe they tried to lock the doors and didn't, uh, you know, if I were in a building and someone was shooting in the parking lot, I would probably go to the exit opposite where they were and run until I passed out. Um, unless there were kids, then I would probably take the kids out that way. Um, the police, again, the police were there within two minutes of him entering the school, but, but, and this is a, another important part of the timeline that people are talking about and upset about, which the FBI is now investigating. Almost an hour and 20 minutes go by while this guy is inside a school before the classroom that he had barricaded himself in uh, was breached by the tactical team and they killed him an hour and 20 minutes. So of course he, he ends up killing two teachers, 19 kids shooting a whole bunch of people. I mean, it's obviously really, really tragic. Um, The other thing to note about this is because the timeline is so long because the police were there for so long, not stopping him. Um, you hear all these stories of parents that are showing up at the school during this event, getting in yelling matches with the cops and screaming at the cops. Some of them getting pepper sprayed and handcuffs for handcuffed for interfering with the police investigation, which is, you know, there's an active shooting happening there. I mean, I can imagine being the parent of a kid in that school showing up and seeing cops who are there standing around not going in, and and I think one dad even said, like, give me your vest, I'll go in, right? Like, standing around, not doing anything while this guy is in there slaughtering children. Um, back to blue. <laughs> uh, so, um, a mom reported, the Wall Street Journal reports this, this mom, Angeli Rose Gomez, um, 29-year-old uh, farm worker supervisor. She had two sons in the school. So she shows up. She hears this alert about the attack. Attack was Tuesday, not Monday. Sorry. She hears this alert about the attack. And she drives her Toyota Camry 
40 kilometers. That's not a small distance. That's not like two blocks. 40 kilometers to the school. So she hears it. Presumably some time passed between it started and she heard it on the radio or wherever she heard it on the internet probably. She gets in her car. She drives 40 kilometers. She gets there, gets handcuffed for probably for being belligerent and interfering with an investigation. She gets handcuffed for yelling about, hey, my kids are in that effing school. You slack jaw donut eaters, go save my children. They do what they do best. They handcuff innocent people. Um, handcuff her. Now, she, unfortunately, she knew, like, the sheriff or someone there, she knew some people there. So she talked them into unhandcuffing her. And then she sneaked away from the crowd, hopped the fence to get back onto school grounds, and went and got her kids from the classroom. And took her kids out of the school by herself, unarmed, against the wishes of the police. According to the Wall Street Journal, her older son told her that he and his classmates saw the shooter during recess walking calmly into the school with a rifle. Alarmed by this, they ran inside. Also, don't quite understand that, but, they, you know, they're fourth graders or third graders or whatever. So, Another case of a nine-year-old boy named Daniel who climbed out through a broken window and lived while his class was, uh, I think, four bullets were shot into his class. So just a horrific, horrific thing and a pathetic response from law enforcement. Um, someone on chat says the individual cops didn't go inside because the chief ordered them not to. Remember, these are robots. They do what they're told and they don't ask questions. The chief was told by the major what to do. Yes, I understand. And there's some, there's some uh, investigations about you know, because 911 received calls and there's like that shooting was happening and there's some questions about like, did they relay those calls to the person in charge on the scene? What was going on? Good point, though, that um, the cops are robots. That's a good thing to remember. Um, they do what they're told, not what's right. Uh, an important thing also to remember about this whole thing, and this is just, you know, <sighs> People forget this sometimes, and it's worth reminding you. Um, yeah, Alex says they do get fired when they disobey. Right, I'm sure. <clears throat> Just doing my job. Um, important thing to re remember about cops. The police are not legally obligated to do anything except for investigate after a crime has occurred. They are not legally obligated to intervene in the commission of a crime. I don't care how many, you know, bootlickers, you know, that say they take an oath and cops. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, maybe morally they should. Maybe they ought to. Maybe many of them are good people that would. They are not legally obligated. You have no right and no constitutionally recognized right either to police protection that is not a thing it's just not several supreme court cases about this though it's one in 1989 called DeShaney versus Winnebago County Department of Social Services the court held that a state government's agency agency's failure to prevent child abuse 
by a custodial parent does not violate the child's right to liberty for the purposes of the 14th Amendment. In other words, uh, they knew that the dad was abusive. They, through a series of fumbling ineptitude, uh, characteristic of most bureaucracies, placed the child back with an abusive parent, got sued. Eh, not their fault. Doesn't matter. You can't sue them. More importantly, more related to this kind of thing, in 1981, there was Warren versus the District of Columbia. This is a brutal rape, assault, robbery that went on for like 14 hours, like absolutely horrific to read about. Um, the court ruled that the police do not owe a specific duty to provide police services to specific citizens based on the public duty doctrine, which is this duty to rescue kind of tort law thing, uh, which was the argument that, hey, they have a duty to do this. Nope. Again, in 2005, Castle Rock versus Gonzalez. Another Supreme Court ruling, a town and its police department could not, this is the ruling, the town and its police department could not be sued under section U.S. Section 42 for failing to enforce a restraining order, which had led to the murder of a woman's three children by her estranged husband. Yeah. So you can sue that they're not saving your children, but they don't have to. I mean, you can talk all you want about what they ought to do, but legally, they don't have to. <laughs> Psycho Speak says, I, I'm, I don't know if that's the way to pronounce it. Psycho Speak in chat says, I am from Winnebago County. Honestly, I thought I misread Winnebago County because all I can think about is an RV. And uh, Winnebago County, is that a thing? Is that just a, like, is it a big RV park somewhere? Where is that? I don't even know. Tell me. I don't know what state that's in. Anyway, just as a reminder, you are ultimately responsible for your own safety. Uh, and that and that, and that of your children. That doesn't mean we want to live in a world where we need to worry about protecting fourth graders from school shootings. That's not what I'm saying. I don't want to live in a world where we have conversations about how many security guards and armed people we need in schools. I, I do you? I don't want to live like I don't want to be in a world where we have to worry about there's so many psychopaths with guns running around going into schools trying to shoot innocent people that that's a, a big topic of conversation we want to be having, right? Um, so I think it, this is a problem worth solving. Uh, school shootings and, and mass shootings generally, as is all shootings and all violence and suicide and child abuse and sexual exploitation. There's a lot of horrific things that are worth um, trying to solve, horrific problems that are worth trying to solve. And this is one of them. And obviously it's sensational and makes the news and it's particularly uh, gut-wrenching to hear about. Um, but being responsible for you know your own safety does mean that if you rely on the police to protect you all the time, that is a placebo at best, at best, and it actually could be much worse than a placebo. Um, it probably does mean that you're submitting to the whims of an even greater evil later on, which we will talk about. Uh, you know, it's like a, a darker version of the PJO work quote. I think uh, that famous PJO work quote, one of his was, uh, Giving money and power to government is like giving whiskey and car keys to teenage boys. Um, kind of similarly relying on the police is like relying on criminals. Um, because the police are robots executing orders, which we'll get to. Uh, Greg DeBaritone says, there are Winnebago counties in Iowa, Wisconsin, and Illinois. Uh, but the one that PsychoSpeak was talking about is Wisconsin. And, and Psycho Speak says there's a Winnebago County in all our hearts. There certainly is. Uh, okay. 
I wanted to talk again. I, I don't want. We don't need to get into the details of of complaining about the police here and and the mess up. There'll be an investigation, uh, all that kind of stuff. I I you know for this for this show we like to talk about ideas and try and practice thinking more clearly. And this is an opportunity to talk about the differences between uh, principles and pragmatic solutions, principled solutions and pragmatic solutions, and how you, you can get caught up in stuff if you're not really understanding what that difference is or isn't. Um, because after a shooting like this, um, after these kind of events, um, these mass murders, which I think we had another one, by the way, just today, I just went to pick up my daughter from school, actually, and uh, I just noticed on my phone there was a, uh, a shooting in Tulsa, I think. There's a, like, it's happening again. Um, but whenever these kind of things happen, uh, I think you see... Of course, you see ideologues. I'm, we're going to put the ideologues aside. There's always ideologues who have been, you know, arguing against gun ownership and against the Second Amendment on principle. They're on their own principle for you know ages. So let's put those aside. But from kind of the normies, you see, um, and and I'm going to call normies pragmatists in general because I think most people are pragmatists. Um, you see that a lot of the pragmatists, or even if they're just feigning pragmatism and have ideology behind them, they take these pragmatic stances against principles. They like despise people who take principled stances in any of these cases. Um, and, you know, at, at best, people who take these, these principled stances or these principles themselves are viewed as this luxury, right? People are like, oh, I get it, man. I get you have the stance and, and, you know, uh, self-defense and all that but kids are dying you gotta do something right like it's it's a luxury you have a luxury that you're, you're like, i get that you want the second amendment but there's a that's a, it's a luxury we gotta do something right um so there's this this view that these principles are this kind of luxurious uh ivory tower kind of thing like detached from like well i just have principles and i don't care about the children like that's kind of the attitude that you get um and and there's this and there's this attitude with those kind of people that like anything is better than nothing. I heard I heard uh, OK Harvard, aka David Hogg, on NPR the other day, um, and he was adamantly telling whoever the NPR person was, if it saves just one life, Terry. I don't know if it was Terry. If it saves just one life, if it's just one life, if it saves just one life, we have to do it. Uh, he wasn't talking about the Pfizer vaccine. Just to be clear. Um, so, uh, so there's those kind of people who view principle as luxury. And I think this is, I think that attitude comes from people who like the idea of principles often, but they don't understand the connection of principles to reality. Um, they think that they're just kind of these egghead things. These, the principles are just kind of these for, for lofty, you know, weird people who like to sit around and, and, you know, read Thomas Jefferson or read the Bible or whatever. And like, oh, those are principles are just you know, you got to roll your sleeves up, you know, do the real work. And uh, there's also another class, I think, of, of people who are uh, even more cynical. They have an even more cynical view of principles. And that is that they think principles are used by people like me as mere excuses uh, to do evil, right? So they'll literally say things, especially if you go on Twitter, but whatever. They'll literally say things like, you don't care that kids are 
dying, right? You're just saying right to self-defense or right to bear arms. You're just trying to use these noble sounding ideas to cover for the fact that you're fundamentally a psychopathic evil person who doesn't care about the murder of children. I care. You're an evil, evil person who's just using language of principles to make it seem like you're noble. Um, and I think these kind of people, uh, they don't even like the idea of principles generally, right? Um, and, and they tend to be 100% driven by emotion. And I don't mean, when I say driven by emotion, I don't mean motivated by emotion. We're all motivated by emotion. Emotion motivates us to think about things and act and do stuff. I mean driven by it in the sense that they, the emotion bubbles up inside them and they despise any attempt to run it through a prefrontal cortex to like think through it using reason, right? They don't like the idea that you would say, I get that you're upset, let's stop and think about the right course of action, right? Their, their, their visceral response is no stopping and thinking. I feel like doing this, therefore we should do it. Um, they're intellectually, they're just animals, right? They're no, they're not human. That's not a human. Humans are defined by our ability to, to think long-term and reason, like not by, you know, <laughs> spasmonically gyrating because we feel a certain way, which is how uh, a lot of people, unfortunately, have been reduced to acting. Um, so the, their attitude is like, I feel this. Don't bother me with trying to discuss it. We mean, you know, they kind of resent uh, reality itself. You can kind of think of them as um, it's insulting to say this to, about children, but they, they're kind of like <laughs> spoiled children. Uh, who become enraged with the existence of any obstacle from of, uh, to their desires, to, to fulfilling their desires, right? So whether the obstacle comes from parents or other people or reality itself, these are the kind of people that are angry, like literally angry. You know these people. I'm sure you've seen these people. They're angry that, that men and women are biologically different. They're angry about that. I actually briefly, a long time ago, dated someone who was like, I brought up some Actually, they were brain differences on average. And she just like, she had been rational about many things, but she was like, this is like well before I recognized woke was even a thing. This is a long time ago. But she had been indoctrinated in this. And she was like, she got angry. She got angry that like, I'm like, well, I thought I was just saying some facts. Can't we have a conversation about them? No, it the facts angered her. This is this, those kind of people, right? They're angry that Elon Musk is a billionaire and they're not. Like the facts don't matter. They're angry that men and women are different. They're angry at reality. They're angry at any obstacle. So they look at your principles and they think that they're kind of projecting because they're such uh, despicable people that they're projecting here and they assume that you're a despicable person. So the only reason they would talk about principles is to hide something, some evil desire of their heart. So they assume that that's why you're doing. So there's those kind of people. And then there's, like I said, the people before who just kind of they like the idea of principles, but, you know, they're kind of just pragmatists. G-Man says Carter used to date Amber Heard. <clears throat> no. <laughs> but a smarter and less attractive version of Amber Heard. Yes. Okay. Um, so why do people have this reaction? Why Why is there this, this dichotomy that's being set up of principles versus pragmatism? And I want to dig into this because um, it really matters for cases like this um, and, and a lot of other cases. Um, the assumption here, when you, when, you, when you frame a discussion in terms of like a principled stance versus a pragmatic stance or a practical stance, the assumption here is that pragmatism or practicality has something to do with reality, right? 
and that principles don't. But the, that pragmatism has this just a connection to reality, right? And you hear these, you hear this um this framing in in common phrases, right? You'll hear people say, well, it works in theory, but it's not in practice, not, not in practice, right? Or it's good on paper, but not in the real world. Like those are the kind of phrases that separate, like, well, theory is this thing, there's a theory and the principles, and that that's fine. But there's the real world. There's the, you know, roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty, deal with the real world. And that's what we got to do. Um, now, how do you know that an action you want to take is pragmatic or practical? How do you know it's based in the real world? Well, you've done it or someone's done it and you observe the results. Just like anything, like, oh, it's pragmatic if it appears to have the effect that you want. That's that's kind of the definition of pragmatism, right? It's like, oh, this is the thing that works, right? And you can do that through observing results. You, you do something and you observe the results of it. But um, but the other flip side of this assumption is that the principles don't have anything to do with reality. That the, the, the pragmatic, practical stuff has something to do with reality, getting real results. Right. I hate when politicians do that. Right. They're like, oh, I'm here to get results. I want to get real. I'm going to roll my sleeves up and, you know, just get get some real results. Right. Like that's the, it's this uh, it's this uh, positioning that they're going to do a bunch of unprincipled stuff because it's because that's how you get results. Right. Um, so so the, the this the other half of this. Right. Is that principles don't have anything to do with reality, that principles and and therefore ethics by extension. Because principles are just ethical generalizations, right? That principles and ethics are somehow disconnected from the real world. They're spiritual or they're these abstract ideas. They're just kind of untethered to the real world. They're idealist. They're the things of gods, not men, right? They're this, there's this other realm. There's this ethereal realm of principles, right? And fundamentally, this is the separation of ethics from reality here on earth, right? Um and when you say you're separating ethics from reality, you got to be very clear about what that means. You're separating it from real human needs like sufferings and joy and human thriving and things you need. Like this, it, this, this dichotomy moves ethics into this, this realm of the godly and the perfect and the, this ethereal kind of separate realm that's not the roll your sleeves up and get things done. It doesn't touch reality. Um, now, clearly, we don't live in a perfect world. I don't think anyone would disagree with. Therefore, you, if you have you set up that dichotomy, therefore you say, well, principles are nice guidelines. You know, that's the that's the nice to have stuff that works nice on paper. But you know, and well, and you can follow them if you want to be more noble, and that that's good and stuff. But you know, and look, really, if you really want to help people, really in the real world, you gotta you gotta roll up your sleeves, discard the principles when they're not working, when it's not practical. You gotta deal with the real world. That's that's what you're set up with. Um, that's the dichotomy. That's what I, that's what a lot of people believe really and truly try and have a, a political discussion with anyone based on principles, try and have just a, a cultural discussion based on any kind of principle discussion, um, about gun rights or anything else. Um, and you'll find a lot of like, wow, right. even, even alleged defenders of Liberty will be like, wow, but in the real world, you gotta like, that's, that's where they go right there. They've got this this false, I'm going to argue, false dichotomy of principles and pragmatism in their heads. Or principles versus practicality. Now, 
this false dichotomy is true. So it's not false, right? This dichotomy is true. The principles versus practicality is true. Um, if and only if the principles you're espousing are not rational. And what I mean by that is they're not tethered to reality, right? So if and only if they're just pleasant sounding declarations, if they're a bunch of aphorisms or they're commandments or they're arbitrary or they're meant for some other realm and they're not based in reality, then yes, principles and practicality conflict. So that would be true. But now let's get back, let's get back to practicality for a minute. Let's get back to pragmatism. As I said, how do you know that an action that you want to take is practical? Well, presumably it's it's happened before and you've observed the results, or you do it and you observe the results, right? You say, okay, this action is taken, then we look at the results. That's how we know it works. That's how we know it's practical. That's kind of by definition. But there's a there's a thing you might want to ask here. There's a time horizon that needs to be at play. And this is where I think so many people, especially leftists, absolutely fail here. The time horizon you can ask is, okay, well, when do we observe the results and make a determination? Do you do, you do an action and observe the results five minutes later and decide whether it was a practical thing? Five days later? Five years later? Do you wait five decades to observe the results? Is this a massive historical thing and you wait five centuries? How long do you wait to observe the results before you decide if something is practical and pragmatic, before it works in reality, which is what we're going for? Now, I would argue that in many ways, rational principles, as I'm talking about them, rational principles, are, are, one way to look at them is kind of, they're nothing more than practical actions measured long term. They work long term. They're generalizations. They tell you this action is appropriate for reality in the long term. Maybe not the short term. It might cause pain in the short term, but it's appropriate for reality in the long term. I mean, that's kind of what a principle is in many ways, right? So there's other ways to get at principles, but like that's one way to think about them, right? Because your ethical system should be based on reality. So you shouldn't end up with ethical principles that don't work in reality. Otherwise you've made a mistake. So let's just, let's just go through a few, maybe non, well, we'll do a, a non-triggery example. Let's say you've been tired lately, approaching middle age. Let's pretend you got a seven month old baby. Like I do, it keeps you up or whatever. You're tired lately, right? And you're looking for a solution to this. And I come along and I say, well, I'm no expert, but based on my understanding of the principles of personal health, you should probably eat well, exercise regularly, and get plenty of sleep. Those things will help you not be tired, right? And and you're like, well, you know, I'm going to just do the pragmatic. I'm just going to do the practical thing. I don't like your answer, Carter. I'm going to do the practical thing here. Um and that practical thing will change depending on when you measure your success. You might say, well, if I measure my success after five minutes, cocaine is a great solution. I'm going to snort a line of Coke and I will have energy five minutes later when I measure my success. Yay, practicality. It's practical and pragmatic. It works great for being awake, right? Now, maybe if you change your time horizon to five days, you go, oh, if I measure it after five days, I'm kind of like a 
coke head addicts or what. I don't know how long it takes to be addicted to coke, but whatever. Things presumably start to fall apart after a few days. Maybe that turns out not to be the practical solution. And so you're like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to wait till five days. I'm going to wait after five days. I'm going to decide what solution is best. And you conclude, well, coffee for breakfast and Red Bulls in the afternoon. That's what keeps me awake. But of course, if you do that for five years or decades or whatever, uh, you might conclude, hey, you know, you know what I should be doing if I really if I really want to not be tired all the time, maybe I should be eating well and exercising regularly and getting enough sleep. You end up kind of back at like the principles. Why? Why? Because it's because it's a principle because it works long term. That's why it's a principle. Right. Um, so. And, and these other things all like cocaine, for example, although it may have the effect you want in the short term, doesn't have the long term effect you want. It doesn't, it doesn't, you end up like Charlie Sheen, right? Which is not what you want, right? So you can look at it kind of as a time frame thing. Another example, you could say, you come to me and you say, look, uh, I mistakenly, uh, you know, you, let's say you're married and um, you come to me and you say, uh, hey, I, I spent our entire savings account on lottery tickets and lost. And my spouse is going to be really pissed off at me. So I say, well, look, man, that sucks. You're a fucking retard, but fess up, you know, ethics dictate that you, you know, you can't attempt to gain a value through deceit. If you attempt to gain a value through deceit, it'll turn out bad for you in the long term. It's not, it's not going to turn out psychologically healthy. Honesty is the best thing for you to do in the long term honesty will work out you should you should just choose honesty right now and you can say well no i'm gonna uh i'm gonna choose the practical thing and again we can look at your time horizon if you look at what's practical and you measure success there for five minutes you're like oh, i just won't mention it that's my solution i'm not gonna mention it and if five minutes is the end of your measurement you say it works if I had mentioned it, it would have ruined dinner. She'd have gotten angry, would have had to have a conversation about it, and maybe they'd have been yelling. Not mentioning it totally works. And then if you say, well, okay, what about five days later? Well, not mentioning it might not work. She might notice that the bank account is empty. I guess I should come up with a lie. That's the best thing. I'll come up with a lie in case she checks the bank account, and I'll make something up. And then you realize, okay, well, five years later... Man, I'd have to maintain that lie for five years. Eventually, she's going to figure that out. I Here's what I need to do. I need to figure out a way to maintain the lie long term and secretly earn the money back to put it into the savings account by working another job surreptitiously so she never notices. So now I'm going to construct more lies to put the money back in the bank account so that I can never tell her that I blew it on lottery tickets, right? And after five decades, you're divorced and you're like, yeah, I probably should have just told her in the beginning that I lost all of our savings account on lottery tickets, right? Because that is the practical thing to do. It's also the principled thing to do. Just come clean, man. You bought, you blew the money on lottery tickets. That's what you did. And that will be the best course of action practically for the long term. Okay. So, you know, the point here is that what's practical is at odds with what's principled. If... I guess there's two reasons. One, if the principle isn't reality-based and rational, so the principle's wrong, right? So you could have examples of wrong principles, right? Like uh, never hire a Sagittarius, okay? 
fun principle, but not correlated to reality, right? You could have a more insidious principle. The greatest good for the greatest number is the way to run a society. Okay, well, like, right, you could do that. Um, you might notice after a while, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and run the society based on this greatest good for the greatest number thing. And you notice after a while this Marxist thing isn't working. Now, you what you should do is say, well, maybe the principle's wrong. Maybe this principle's wrong. That's why it's not working. But actually, you know, people use pragmatism to save Marxism by saying, well, Marxism is just this idealist system. That's the problem. It's idealist. It's ideas that are the problem. It's the principles that are the problem. It works fine on paper, just not when it's implemented. They come along and they say that. No. No, Marxism sucks on paper. The principles are bad. It's bad ideas. That's why it fails in reality. You wouldn't say that about math, would you? If you did a math problem, then built a bridge out of it, and the bridge fell down, would you just be like, well, I guess math works on paper, but not in reality? No, you would go check your math. You made a fucking error. That's what you should be doing with everything. If it doesn't work in reality, you made an error. The principles are wrong. It's not that it works on paper, but not in reality. It's that the principles are wrong. Your math was wrong. That's why the bridge fell down, or your physics was were wrong, right? It's not that it, it's not that it works in your textbook, but not when you build the bridge. That's not that's not the problem. But that's what we do. That's what that's what this idea of pragmatism does. It excuses really bad principles by saying by just casting a shadow on, on casting shade on all principles, on all ideas, and say, well, Marxism is bad because it's a because it's an ideal, and ideals are bad. We know that they don't work in reality. Next, that's wrong. So, so one way that pragmatism could be at odds with, with principles is that, or the, the practicality could be at odds with principles is they're bad principles. The other way is that you're, what you're calling pragmatic or what you're calling practical is just a super short-sighted answer, like our cocaine example, right? Um, it's not actually practical in the long run. You're just, you're, you're falling victim to super short-term thinking. So an example that has been in the news lately, at least tangentially, is you could be like, well, let's just print more money to pay for this war and this social program and this other thing, right? Like, let's just do that. Let's just print more money. Okay, if you have a short-term time horizon, you might be like, well, yeah, you, you do get more money for funding your war and your social program. If you look a little bit longer term, you're like, oh, we devalued our currency and caused price inflation and gas prices are seven bucks a gallon, right? Or whatever. You could say, hey, I know, you know what? Some kids aren't getting educated properly. Let's build government-funded schools so that kids are educated. And of course, if you measure government-funded schools in the short term, you see, ah, kids are learning math for a few generations. That's good. They can read and write and do arithmetic. This is working out great. Of course, if you have a long-term time horizon and you think through what inevitably happens with government-funded schools, eventually kids aren't learning math. They're learning that math is racist learning that collectivism is good. Hey, don't look too closely at the Soviet Union, kids. They 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 learn that irreversible sterilizing hormone treatment and surgery is the best solution for teenage angst. That's what they learn in the long run. But I'm sure the people in the short run that supported government schools were like, look, see, they're learning math. Problem solved. 
we're stuck with the problem generations later because you didn't think long term. That's the value of principles. So rational principles are not at odds with the well thought through long term pragmatic solutions. Um, and what's, what happens here often, and it's, I'm using this word sin, bear with me for using, using the word sin. But I've said this before, I think one of the biggest sins um, is evasion. Because um, fundamentally, your free will, in many ways, your, your only real choice is to think or not think. Something strikes your consciousness, and you can decide to pursue that or dismiss it based on how it feels. Right, and that's kind of all, if you really think about this, and we're going to get into free will, but if you really think about it, that's kind of your fundamental choice. All right. Um, so what happens with people is an emotion occurs, let's say empathy or outrage or whatever. And um, there's some solutions that come to mind right away, or you hear about them on, you know, from Brian Stelter on CNN or whatever. And you just grasp at them right away. You just grab the solutions that come to mind right away. And you look very short-term at them, right? Well, if we print more money, we'll have more of it. Duh. That, that's your thought process, right? And then the thought comes to you, or someone maybe prompts you for this thought, that, hey, there might be some negative consequences in the long term. You should look at those, right? That's your choice. That's your moment of choice. You can engage with that thought seriously and risk going down a rabbit hole. You can go down that rabbit hole with sincerity, but you can risk having your uh, what you wanted overturned. You can risk having more uncomfortable thoughts flood your brain. You could, you can risk having to think about things deeply and in a difficult way, stuff that's upsetting, that's bothersome. You can, you can engage fully with that. What does happen if we print long, just print money? What really does, what does inflation do? Who does it really hurt the most in society actually? What does it enable? What does it allow politicians to get away? What is there a moral hazard that happens? Like you could start thinking down all this, and they're they're big, ugly, disturbing answers that you come up with. Or you can just evade that and defend it. Someone says, Well, you should think through the long-term consequences of printing money, and you're like, fuck you, I don't care about homeless people, or you don't care about homeless people, right? Like, I'm trying to solve the homeless problem. You don't care about them. Fuck you. You could just be a hostile reaction. You could rationalize, you could grab there's a little the society you know our culture is full of cliches you can just grab from a cliche and use it as if it's thinking when it's not thinking at all right you can just say well we need to be practical and worry about what's in front of us we don't have time for these principles about inflation and blah, 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 right you could cite authority sources people love to do that well bernanke says it's okay to print money and he's smart he's a golly he's a smart guy that bernanke he says printing money is just swell Whatever, you don't believe it yourself half the time, but you repeat it because it allows you to evade and you move on. That's the sin. Not that we all don't commit these sins sometimes, I'm just, but like that's the fundamental. That's that because you're denying your obligation as a human, which is to engage your rational mind when presented with a problem, with presented with something difficult. When it upsets you, that's when you need to engage. That's not when you need to push it away. When it's bothersome and disturbing and you don't want to think about it is precisely when you need to be thinking about it, all right? And this is true, back to Uvalde, this is true when we think about solving school shootings as well.
<laughs> Tree Surgeon says, I like money. Yeah, that's the, <laughs> but I like money. What was the, oh, what was the one? You're reminding me about idiocracy. What was the line in idiocracy? But Brondo's good for, has what plants need or whatever. <laughs> I forget. I forget exactly the line. <laughs> but it has what plants need. All right, that's, there you go. So I wrote down uh, eight responses that I have heard in the past week or so that are in the mainstream floating around as responses to the school shooting in Uvalde. Uh, I'm going to list the eight and then we're going to just look at them for a minute and decide, is there evasion happening here? Is this a long-term response? Is it actually related? Like what's going, is this a rational thing? Like what's going on here? First, ban ghost guns. Second, introduce red flag laws. Third, introduce universal background checks. David Hogg likes that one. Uh, fourth, introduce manufacturer liability. Fifth, raise the age for purchasing of various kinds of guns, some, you know, the black guns, whatever, 21 years old. Um, buy back weapon programs um, in states that like buy the weapons back. Uh, ban handguns and ban, quote, assault weapons. Those are the, the eight things I've seen floating around. Let's just go through them. And I don't think it'll take long. B. Allen uh, keeps typing stuff in chat and then retracting it, which is so coy. It's like, wow, there must be something profound that's being said and worded meticulously. Whatever you type next, B. Allen, better be awesome. That's all I'm saying. All right. Banning ghost guns. Well, that's completely unrelated to this. It's unrelated. The shooter didn't use a ghost gun. It has nothing to do with this. But that's they're talking about. We got to ban ghost guns. Why? Nothing to do with this, right? It's also impossible. Um, especially in a world of where where 3D printing is becoming more and more viable. I mean, I was a skeptic for a while. I was like, you're not going to be able to really effectively print metal, or you're not going to be able to be able to print ceramics or plastics that can withstand those pressures and temperature. Uh, science is kicking my ass. Like technology is, yep, you will be able to. Absolutely. So if you wanted to attempt to ban ghost guns or 3D printed guns or whatever, they're, they're not exactly the same thing, but... Uh, if you're going to attempt to ban this stuff, you would you would need to build an enormous surveillance system. I mean, you you got to be monitoring the Internet to see any files that people might be seeing around. Like, is this a file that's going to allow me to print a 3D gun? Right. Um, you got to create a vast expansion of the government bureaucracy and power. You give the ATF a lot more to do. You got to there's a lot of thing the, the long term effect with this is an increased police state. Let's just admit that's what it is. It's an increased police state. Okay. Red flag laws. Again, unrelated. This guy would have had, there were no, no red flags, right? I mean, there was like right before a message on Facebook, but unless you want big brother type surveillance, that's, that's flagged literally within 30 seconds and cops show up like red flag laws wouldn't have done a damn thing for this case. They're also an invitation for abuse. Um, You know, we saw in um, Gulag Archipelago. Uh, Article 58, the political prisoners. Like there was there was lots of 
classifying people as as problematic or whatever and like absolutely these are uh an invitation uh for abuse here right because we've seen think about this the long-term effects here inevitably this is going to be used for uh compliance with doctrine by the state we've already seen people talk about misinformation with respect to COVID, misinformation with respect to ukraine as dangerous these are the words used dangerous harmful content well, if the content is dangerous and harmful, you're a dangerous and harmful person. Should you be allowed to have a gun? If if your words are this dangerous and harmful, I mean, it's not a leap to get there. It's a very, it's a small step to go from there to make that like that's a red red flag thing. And then why not just guns? Why and why not knives? Why not anything? If you're dangerous and harmful, if you're and which will be equated with wrong thinker. So in the long run. Uh, there's risk there. I'm not saying it will definitely happen, but there's risk that needs to be taken into account. And it would have done nothing in this case. So the first two things would have done nothing. The third thing would have done nothing. National background checks. First, they're just unrelated. First of all, the uh, the FBI already has the NICS, I think it is. A, uh, and granted, it only applies. So right now, the way it works, if you don't buy guns normally or no, um, at the federal level, if you go to an FFL, if you go to a licensed dealer, you have to do, there's an FBI database that they check to see if you're prohibited from owning a gun. Um, so you got to do that. Now, uh, the federal government doesn't, and I, I guess because they think they can't, I mean, constitutionally they can't, but that never stops them. They, they don't they don't affect intrastate transfers between private parties. So if you're in a state, you know, you can sell it to another private party without going through that, right? Um, technically, I don't think they have the right actually to do the FFL stuff, but whatever. Um, but then depending on what your state, what state you're in, you can't even do that sale without getting involved. Like in California, you have to go through an FFL, I think. So, um, so national background checks, we already have a form of them, um, which I just, uh, mentioned but when you talk about these universal background checks that that people like david hogger pushing this is a federal database of gun owners that will result in this the federal database of gun owners right that's dangerous uh in the long run that's a perfect tool uh, tool for the state confiscation of weapons which they know because they plan to confiscate weapons they i mean it's a feature for them not a bug but for us it's a bug all right um, you could hold gun makers liable. This is another one of their ideas. Hold gun makers liable when products are used in the commission of a crime. California is proposing this. Think for two seconds what this is going to happen. What's going to happen in the long run? Let's say you're Glock. You sell a bunch of weapons to the military and police. When they kill innocent people in the Middle East, or just, you know, people they've pulled over or whatever, uh, you're not liable. They can fuck up all you want, all they want. They can shoot anyone with your Glock. No liability. Not your problem. But you sell it to private citizens and and one of them does something bad, now you're liable. What are you going to stop doing? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a risk analysis. Like, eh, I'll just sell the governments. And eventually you'll end up with an oligopoly with just a few large companies selling to governments, making guns. Only government has guns. That's the goal. For holding gun makers liable, that's what it results in. That's the goal. That's what will happen in the long term. 
because economics, right? Uh, you've seen people saying uh, we should raise the age to buy some of these weapons to, to 21. That might have made a difference in this case. This guy was 18, so maybe if he couldn't buy anything till he was 21, maybe he'd have matured a few years and decided killing fourth graders was a bad idea. Um, he could have stolen guns and done it anyway. Maybe he just would have done it on his 21st birthday instead of his 18th birthday. Uh, don't know. But of course, you're setting a precedent here. There's, there's a principle that you're kind of manufacturing. Um, if you're not old enough to own a gun because you can't be trusted to not shoot it at fourth graders, how could you possibly be trusted to do anything else? How could you possibly be trusted to vote? Just to be clear, the government has a monopoly on the initiation of the use of force. Why should you have a say in who we get, who the we, who the government bombs and shoots if you can't be trusted to just, you know, not shoot fourth graders? So that's a weird precedent, right? The government has the largest gun and you're like, well, you're old enough to point the largest gun at people, but you can't have your own gun that you point. Voting is the most dangerous thing anyone should do. It should be the last right you obtain is voting. Right. Putting it right in quotes. Right. So that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I mean, it's self-contradictory. Buyback programs. California's proposed one. Gavin Newsom tweeted, uh, California is proposing the largest gun buyback program in the nation. Uh, also, Canada pr proposed a buyback assault-style weapons. I put that in quotes. Assault style. Because they used to say assault rifle. Everyone yelled at them because that's not what AR stands for. And now they're like assault style weapons. Black ones that look scary. All right. Well, obviously this is unrelated. He wouldn't have sold his gun to the government. So that wouldn't have helped. Um, and obviously this is a soft attempt to disarm the populace. By the way. I'm really, I don't know if anyone else is bothered by this. I'm I'm bothered by the term buy back. This adds a level of legitimacy to spending taxpayer dollars to buy people's guns that is not appropriate. Because implicit in the idea of that you're buying back, implicit in that idea is that the government is kind of the boss. Like you buy things back from someone who sold them to you, but the government didn't sell us anything. So it almost implies that the government like allowed you to have the gun in the first place and now they're taking it back, right? It's, I mean, really it's eminent domain for guns is what it is, right? But that doesn't sound as nice as buy back. Why is it not just eminent domain for guns or gun buying? I think it's just to sound legitimate. Um, so they've said, okay, well, we could ban handguns. That was Canada's idea because Trudeau is a retard. Uh, so he's like, we're going to ban the purchase, sale, importation, and transfer of handguns. Obviously, this is unrelated to what happened in another country with another type of weapon. Um, there will be a long-term effect here, which we'll talk about in a minute because it's a long-term effect of a lot of these things. And the last idea I've heard uh, banded about is ban assault weapons. At least that's related to this. <laughs> um, but there are some long-term effects. And we need to talk about the, the, the long-term pragmatic view right? The IE, the principled view here. What happens in the long term if you do some of these things, especially some of the bannings and whatever, but even the red flags.
Okay. All of these solutions, especially the banning ones, but all of them to some extent, involve solidifying the government's monopoly on weapons. They already have a monopoly on the initiation of the use of force. This solidifies their monopoly on the use of force generally, not just the initiation, on, on the means through which force can be used, right? To be, because this is obvious and you hear this all the time, but just it's worth stating. No one's proposing that the government gets rid of their AR-15s, right? And by the way, Gavin Newsom right now, I have a buyback program. I will buy back any guns that California officials, that California police um, or any California official has um, that California has purchased from them uh, for them uh, on their behalf. I will buy those guns back. So just uh, tweet at me or send me an email. I have a buyback program. California cops, you are welcome to bring your guns over to my house and I will buy them back for you. Uh, anyway, no one's proposing that. No one's proposing getting rid of the government's guns. So this is not, none of these proposals, none of these gun bans, blah, blah, blah. They're not an eradication of weapons. This isn't the wave a magic wand and weapons are all gone off the face of the earth. It's a consolidation of, of weapons in fewer hands. That's what all of this amounts to. And we should be clear about that uh, because it does matter for what we're going to talk about. Um, and, and the fewer hands, there's two groups of fewer hands. One of them I'm just going to completely ignore, although we could make a good argument for this, why this is a problem. One of those hands is criminals. Criminals will continue to have them. Uh, they will steal them. They will manufacture them even when they're not supposed to be. They will import them from other places. They'll steal them from the police if they need to. They will get their hands on weapons. That's what criminals do. Um, so criminals will have, I'm not even going to address the criminal situation. We'll just put that aside. We're going to talk about it today. The other group that will have guns legally is government agents, police, military, everything else. So when you talk about banning guns, um, you're talking about moving the guns to the exclusive uh, control and ownership by government agents, police, military. And the argument for that goes something like this. Innocent people, children, right? Children are killed by civilians with guns. Here's the case in Uvalde. It's horrible. People are motivated here when they see this. They're motivated by emotion, which is understandable and, and right. Like, I'm motivated by emotion with this. I look at it, and it's, it's horrific. And and they they immediately go to, we have to stop this. Yeah, that's that's that motivation. And, of course, like any good person looks at that and says, we got to stop this. We have to find a way to stop this. This is horrific. It breaks your heart. I mean, just... Watch the vi there's a video, there's like an hour-long video taken outside the, the school. You can see parents arguing and yelling. It's just like I can't imagine being there while my child is inside. It's it's heartbreaking, right? So that's the motivation. But then they jump to a solution, and all the solutions look something like this. If the government had all the guns, this wouldn't happen, right? And even if they're not planning outright confiscation and banning. Every single thing they're planning is a step in that direction, and many of them will admit it, many of them won't, but a lot of them will just admit it. Like, yeah, that's our goal, but we got to compromise, so we can't ban them, so we'll raise the edge. We'll buy them back, whatever it is, that's the goal. So, um, is there a sin of evasion here? Is there something that's not being thought about when, when all this stuff is proposed? And again, we're going to, like I said, we're going to exclude the criminal problem. We're going to assume that 
you pass some legislation and literally all the criminals can't get guns anymore. They all vanish. All the civilian guns disappear. We're going to operate under that assumption. I know that's crazy, but we're going to see like, let's wave a magic wand. Every civilian gun disappears magically, including criminals, all gone. Only the government has the guns. What's wrong with that? Is there anything we need to think about? If that's the case. Well, we can look at the threat scenario in the short term uh, in the situation I just outlined. Well, the threat to children in schools from armed psychopathic civilians has gone away. If you wave your wand and that happens, okay, that threat has gone away. Now, you still have civilian psychopaths wandering around who want to mass murder fourth graders. You haven't solved that problem. And I submit that's kind of a big problem. Uh, as we saw 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, you can use planes to kill people. Like, there's lots of things you can use to kill people if your goal is mass murder. So the fact that we have 18-year-old psychopaths who want to mass murder school-age children or other innocent people, that's a problem. We haven't solved it. But at least the threat to the specific thing has gone away. If you wave your, your legislative wand, no civilians have any guns. Well then no civilians walk in with an AR-15 and shoot 19 children to death in Uvalde, Texas. So that happens in the, in the short term. Okay, fair enough. Long term. Has it cost us anything in the long term? Well, gun control advocates will say no. Not really. They'll say, well, you can't hunt. You won't be able to target practice hunt or, you know, you, you can't, or you can't kill innocent people either, Right. Um, so that's a fine exchange. That's what gun control. They'll say that's a fine exchange. Well, you know, so we have to give up hunting and target. Who cares? Right, we're saving kids. Right. Uh, now, no, you also also can't protect yourself against threats. <laughs> Remember what we said, the police aren't obligated to. So that also goes away. We'll put that aside as well. So we're putting two huge things aside. Criminals will still have guns and police can't actually protect you. You can't protect yourself if someone, you know, if you're in a dark alley and you're a 90-pound woman and a 250-pound guy comes at you with a knife, you can't shoot him because you can't have a gun. Um, so that's that's what they'll say. In the long term, they'll say just doesn't cost. So, okay, so is there an invasion happening? Well, maybe they just haven't thought about this, so I'm just going to say it now and you guys can think about it. If you're looking at the long term, what's the biggest threat to innocent civilians, including children, including fourth graders? What's the biggest threat historically to their very lives? Who is the biggest mass murderer? Who murders the most people? What kind of entity murders the most? What Who murders the most people? Is there a giant Ted Bundy out there? Is there... A Charles Manson? Who's the big murderer out there? What's the biggest threat? Because, you know, school shootings are horrible, but they're a drop in the bucket from all, all homicides, <clears throat> all firearm homicides. And firearm homicides are, are, are horrible, but they're also a drop in the bucket compared to what I'm going to say. What? Who's the biggest murderer? G-Man says Planned Parenthood. We're not, we're going to put that aside for a second, G-Man. Let's, let's give them their, let's give them their abortion just for a second. I'm not even get into the abortion debate. Who's the biggest murderer? 
Well, many people don't know this because they don't get taught it in school. Their own governments. There's a term for it. It's called democide. In the 20th century, over 100 million people were killed by their own governments. I'm not talking about wars. I'm not talking about sending people to Vietnam. I'm talking about killing your own civilians. I'm talking about your police, your thin blue line, shooting and murdering and starving civilians. That's what I'm talking about. That is by far the biggest threat that we all face in modern society. That's it. That's the biggest threat. You want to worry about being murdered? Your own fucking government. That is the that is the entity most likely to murder you. That in McDonald's. Um, but that's the entity most likely to murder you. Violently. Governments do it. We just read Gulag Archipelago on Book Club recently. There's a reason they don't read it in schools, because they don't want you to know what happens when you implement collectivism. I mean, it is just a... It's a horrific... I mean, and and he's pretty... Solzhenitsyn is pretty careful to not get into, like... He, he mentions some stuff, but he doesn't, like... Yeah. He's not like a Wes Anderson movie or whatever. He's not like going out of his way to talk about blood and stuff. Like he's not trying to be grotesque. But the torture and the murder, the unbelievable death camps and, well, work camps. Some of them were called work camps. I'm just death camps. In the Soviet Union, that no one gave a crap about. The West didn't care. We were just, you know, we only cared about Nazi death camps, not Soviet death camps, because <laughs> Soviets were commies. Yay, commies. And 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 the people, uh, you could say a lot of more political prisoners, and, and they and that was the justification, the article article 58, enemies of enemies of the people article. But a lot of times it's just random, like they would just, you know, they needed to fill a quota. The police needed to fill a quota. So if they showed up at your house and you weren't there, they might just arrest someone else. And, and there's cases of people just like left, you know, they got wind that they were going to be arrested and just left. And they were never really arrested. They got, you know, they arrested someone else and didn't had a quota to fill. It wasn't about anything you did or said. You could justify anything, right? And early on under Lenin, this isn't just Stalin, by the way. It's not, this isn't, this Lenin was, was uh, you know, implemented a lot of this stuff. Stalin just did it more. But, you know, this was, well, what class does this person to belong to? That determines whether they're guilty, not whether they said anything, right? So if you explore this topic of democide, if you look at what the Chinese did and what Mao did, if you look at what the Khmer Rouge did, if you look at what Lenin and Stalin did, if you look at how people like Che Guevara acted, if you look around the world, I didn't even mention Germany, right? If you look around the world at these governments, and you explore this topic, you might you might end up having some empathy, not just for future victims of school shootings, but for future victims of government. Because democide is worse. I mean, it's hard to imagine much worse than shooting innocent kids. 
read Gulag Archipelago. And kids aren't exempt from this stuff either by governments. And I, again, I didn't even mention Germany. So if you didn't evade the fact that governments are a real, real threat here, like a serious threat. You can't just chalk it up to like crazy people saying, I'm worried about my government. It's a real thing. And if you're not worried about your government, it's because you're ignorant with respect to history. It's your own ignorance and probably willful evasion that makes you not worried about your government. So if you didn't evade this fact, you might look at this stuff and you might conclude, well, you might look at Uvalde and you might say, well, whatever solution we come up with, we certainly can't increase the risk of democide here, can we? Because the cost there is really too high. So we've got to look for solutions that don't further solidify the government monopoly on weapons. And those solutions are probably going to be complex. They're probably going to be difficult. A good place to start with those solutions is, why the fuck does anyone want to murder children in the first place? What's going on psychologically? Maybe don't evade the fact that this is, like I said, a drop in the bucket in terms of homicides in the U.S. Why? What's going on culturally? Probably also don't evade the fact that homicides, I think, have been in general going down over the last few years. I think maybe a different, but over decades, it's been a declining trend. But you wouldn't evade the fact, like, why, why are these homicides happening? What is going on? Maybe don't evade asking if, hey, if the majority wants something, does that make it right or not? That's an uncomfortable question to ask. That gets evaded. So if you looked at this stuff, you might, you might say, well... I got to stop evading these hard problems. I can't just say government should fix it because actually the cost there is really high. It's a, it's a huge risk to, to increase the risk of, of democide is, is too costly. We can't do that. We've got to find something else. And that's messy and ugly, right? And even if we had the answers here, they would probably be unsatisfying. They'd be complex. They'd be long-term. They will likely go against cultural inertia. They'll be difficult, but they're worth asking. They're the hard problem. They're the answer of that. They're what you get when you don't evade. You go, oh, yuck, this is ugly. These are some deep problems. And like, this is a, this is an issue, right? You also might actually, so that might be, that might be your response. If you, if you didn't evade this stuff and you, you thought about the risk of democide, you would say, well, we can't solve the Uvalde problem by increasing the risk of democide. we got to do something else. You might look at these harder problems, which few people are really looking at seriously. And you might actually start thinking about how to stop the government because, you know, <clears throat> I saw this. This <sighs> Someone indirectly accused me the, the other day of only talking about these kind of things right after school shootings. Well, the, you know, you only, you guys only focus on mental health and stuff um, right after school shootings. And, you know, and, you, and the assumption is that you're doing it to deflect from, uh, you know, calls for gun control, right? And, and so people, you know, because obviously I'm against gun control. And they say, you only focus on, on mental health and stuff after school shootings. And I could say, well, fair enough. I mean, they are in the news and like, that's when I think about it the most. 
Um, but if we're going to play that game, I'm going to play a game with all of you who don't fight for liberty. I will accuse you of never talking about democide. Because at best, you do it immediately after something has happened. Right? And usually only then if it's fascist. If it's Marxist, you probably won't talk about it much at all. I don't want to use the right-left thing because both Marxism and fascism are collectivist. But you've just, you know, if you're not focused on this kind of, if this is a thing you never talk about, don't you dare tell me that I don't talk about mass shootings and mental health when they happen. Because what I do talk about and what other liberty-minded people talk about all the time is the risk of governments to their citizens. And all you people not worried about liberty, you people that don't fight for liberty, you're just marching along, proposing all sorts of increases in government power, militarizing the police, making a surveillance state, passing the Patriot Act, increasing restrictions to the right and bear arms. But people who are fighting for liberty, and obviously it's not just me, there's plenty of people doing even more than I have and, and, and doing it for a long time. But people who are fighting for liberty every day who are fighting against government power, especially against government monopoly on weapons, we are fighting against democide before the next one happens. We are trying to stop the next democide, which is way, way more important than stopping the next school shooting, by the way. And we're not just doing it for the two weeks following the Hall of Demore saying, oops, sorry, we got that one wrong. Commies, oops, sorry about Walter Durante. Let's move on. We're doing it every day and we're doing it for years. We're doing it decades in advance of any democide ever happening to us and to our fellow citizens, we are thinking long-term. We are thinking in principles. And by long-term, I and by principles, I mean practical, long-term practical thinking. So the next time someone says, well, you're only talking about the mental health stuff because, you know, school shooting, and then you'll forget about it. Yeah. Yeah. How often do you worry about preventing democide? How often do you worry about governments torturing murdering, starving their, their, their citizens, because that's something I worry about almost every day. And I talk about almost every day. So next time someone says that to you, you argue back if you're a liberty minded person who supports second amendment. I've been thinking about this. Um, I'm going to think about stories for a minute because arguments here, look, I, you know, I've got my flaws. <laughs> I know it's hard to believe. I got my flaws. One of my many flaws is I'm, I like straightforward <laughs> didactic <laughs> conversation. Like, Here's some arguments. Here's some facts. I like, I can have abstract conversations and I can be swayed by abstract conversations. Like I can change my mind fundamentally on things and then propagate that down to, to how that gets implemented without stories to move me all the time. And I guess that's good for me, but I'm also bad at recognizing that most people need stories. They need to hear stories of this. The reason the reason that, you know, 
the reason that 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 gun control advocates seize on moments like Uvalde is because it's a story. It's a horrible, tragic story. But that story moves people. And then gun control advocates seize on that to push their agenda. And we don't have, you know, I was thinking about this. I was like, well, what stories, what stories could like individualists push for? What can we remind people of? What stories are there to tell? Um, fiction stories. I mean, there's historical stories, right? But, you know, and I, so I started to think about what are the stories that we have in culture? And the olden days, like, you know, back in, you know, Homer, Homeric days, right? We had stories about basically might makes right. The heroes win wars. They do it for themselves or the state generally. They're, they're kind of conflated. Uh, we have like divine rights. You read the Iliad and Odyssey. It, there's, it, there's, there's uh, lots of honor and for the gods and blah, blah, blah. And, but all the way up through King Arthur and stuff, there's like lots of divine right of kings and, you know, that kind of, no, like there's a lot of stories about heroism in, in service to the state. And in modern times, we mostly don't have heroism in service to kings, except if you're, I, well, like Disney princesses, I guess we have heroism in service to them. But, you know, most of the stories uh, that involve heroics um, are still heroes for the government. They're still odes to to the government monopoly on, on violence, right? If you look at, like, uh, I'm excluding things, you know, stories that are not about, hero you know, romance stories or comedies or whatever, you know. But, like, look at the Bonds, the James Bond. I love the James Bond series, but, you know, he's a... <laughs> He's an agent of the state, right? And the villains are usually like rich guys or opposing governments. Look at movies like I just watched Aliens recently with my daughter. The corporation is the bad guy, right? Because the corporation is bad. Avatar, corporation's bad. Even movies like Braveheart that a lot of libertarian-minded or liberty-minded people quote and, and like. It's not really about freedom. They're like, we want to choose our own king. Okay. Um you know, there's there's some there's some movies about this stuff, but generally any kind of voluntary interaction is shown as chaotic and dangerous. So, like, anarchy is shown as crazy and violent. Um, and worse, there's really a dearth of any kind of stories. And you, you help me out in chat here. I think there's a there's a dearth of stories, modern stories, that depict. What happens when a society, including its institutions and government, adopts collectivist ideas and, and then like what happens? How does what happens as a result over time? Because, you know, the story of even the story of the Trojan War, even if you read uh, Iliad, right? It's 10 year war, blah, blah, blah. 10 years is nothing, right? In the, in the scheme of things, right? In terms of like what happens when, when, these bad collectivist ideas take over and what happens to a society. It, it happens for really long periods of time. And I can't think of many stories, really any stories that depict the crumbling of a society. The one I could think of, and of course I could think of this cause you know, uh, I'm a fan of it, but Atlas shrugged does, does, does depict the, um, descent of society, the, the, the crumbling society based on the adoption of, collectivist ideology, but most dystopian novels that we read, 1984, Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451, 
they're all post it's like the collapse has already happened the bad guys have already taken over we already have the authoritarian state now what even i i guess we read um margaret atwood's handmade tale the beginning of that kind of talks a little there's like a maybe a chapter or two about how things were and like it's a really quick like it shows the transition but not why the transition happened and how it happened really uh it's mostly post transition to this authoritarian world um we just don't have a lot of stories where we can motivate people and say look look what happens look what happens when even when people claim that they're doing it for the public good when they're doing it for even good quote ideas or noble intentions look at the death and destruction they cause we don't have a lot of stories like that I think that's intentional, by the way, but we don't have a lot of those. We have some true stories like Gulag Archipelago, like I mentioned, it's not a story. Um, it's, it's historical accounting, but, you know, there's probably a reason that we don't read that in high school because uh, we don't want kids to know that. Um, yeah, I given the dearth of these kind of stories it's not surprising to me that we're cavalier when it comes to the threat of democide when we brush it away it sounds like a kooky paranoid thing i'm the crazy person for saying hey you know governments kill a lot of their people historically this is a real threat we actually need guns to fight our government that's the threat that's the purpose of the second amendment and when you remind people of that or when you quote jefferson or people like that who talked about this you sound like the paranoid crazy one because people are not used to stories where this happens, even though in history it's replete with them. In actual history, it happens all the time. But this is a long-term, slow threat, so it doesn't happen overnight. And people have very, you know, like we talked about, they're evading looking at things long-term. They're only looking at short-term stuff. And I think we've been intentionally been inoculated against detecting this. Uh, because we don't read these kind of stories and we we have a different set of stories where the government is the good guys generally. And the scary thing is like, what if a guy starts a business and is unregulated? Dun, dun, dun. Like, ah, the unregulated rich guy is the problem. Like, yeah, some of them are problems. But you know who's a bigger problem in history? Like, traditionally, governments, the, the, the smiling congressman, Mr. Smith going to Washington is the villain. Usually, right? It's it's the guys that go to Washington and pass laws for, quote, good intentions. They're the problem. Historically, they're the problem. And we don't have a lot of stories. So I don't know how to solve that, but there we go. Someone says Terminator. Uh, Terminator, I guess you could say Terminator is about, but the, the fundamental thing isn't in Terminator isn't that people tried to, to do something for the greater good. And it, I mean, it's, it's really more of a tech story. I don't know if I would count that too much, but all right. Um, I was gonna, I was gonna read actually a question from last time that I didn't get to, um, cause it's kind of related to all this stuff, but, uh, I'll save it for, I'll save it for a future show. Um, cause we've been going an hour and a half. Um, I do have a question. Do you guys want me? I guess you can answer in chat, but you can also just answer in comments later if you want. Um, Davos was this past week and I watched a little bit. There's like videos of, of pieces, bits and pieces. One of the things that we learned was that central bank digital currency 
prototype will be, uh, they'll have a prototype, they say, I think by 2024, something like that. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of crazy things to be nervous about with respect to Davos, a lot of things to pay attention to um, when you see what the World Economic Forum and global elites have in mind for us. Uh, should I do a deeper dive into that? It will require time. I'll have to go watch a lot more and figure it out. But if you guys are interested in what's going on in Davos and WEF, let me know and I'll, I'll, I'll try and do a show about that coming up because um, I might I might do it anyway because I'm a little bit concerned. But let me know if you guys are concerned. So, all right. Uh, I think that's it. Um, like, I got a few more things I could discuss. But let's just, you know, this was a, is a heavy day. We're talking about school shooting, which is never enjoyable. Um, but, yeah, I don't, I don't. I have some lighthearted things here, but I don't really want to switch. Switch. G-Man says, yes, Davos it up. Okay. Well, thanks, everyone. Uh, enormous thank you to those who continue to support us financially. Uh, it does mean a lot. We do. Uh, I mean, I've been losing money for years doing this, this thing, just to be clear. But I would like to lose less money on a monthly basis than I have been losing. So help me lose less money. How's that? That's, a, that's the best value proposition i can tell you um but uh yeah thank you to those who do support you can go to unsafe.com to join them you get your name in the credits continue discussions in discord and that kind of stuff as always um i love the topic suggestions feedback all that stuff tomorrow night don't miss token minority token minority report with uh beverly and alex and then on friday as i mentioned there's an episode of free association which um in which i interview axel kaiser about uh, a little bit about the history of Chile and then uh, the as well as the their new Marxist based constitution that looks like either will get approved shortly by the end of this year or it might miss this cycle and then and they'll do it again. But it's definitely moving in that direction. So we have a good conversation about that. So check it out. All right. Um, on that note, uh, go fight for liberty, fight against democide. Tell these leftists, hey, how come you never talk about democide until right after someone goes to the gas chamber? Yeah. How about we keep talking about democide now because it is a threat. It's the biggest threat. And, um, you know, make them go read Gulag Archipelago or something. Make them go read about uh, how horrific uh, governments treat and have treated their civilians um, throughout history. And maybe they'll understand why. The Second Amendment was put there in the first place. So have a good one, everyone. And I will uh, see you all on Friday and then Monday for Narrative Dissonance. Take care. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production does not meet WHO health and safety standards. Please report to a United Nations sanitization center immediately.
association with the following individuals is strictly prohibited. Experts who benefit from printing money agree that printing money does not cause price inflation. Trust me, just two more weeks to slow the spread of monkeypox. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.